We're going to move on to our first uh, scripture reading. Uh, while we are preaching through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, we just often read kind of from the opposite. We've been reading through Philippians, and we are at the end. This is the very end of the book of, to, to the people at Philippi, the church at Philippi, from the Apostle Paul. And we're going to read uh, verses 10 to 20 from the fourth chapter. Amy's going to come and read it for us. Amy, if you would. I have rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking in being of need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthened me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you, Philippians, yourself, know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent my help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Ephroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Jesus Christ. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. We are now going to move to our sermon scripture reading. Uh, we are preaching from the book of 1 Samuel. Actually, this is the last week in 1 Samuel. After this, David gets anointed as king and sort of comes onto the scene. And very early in Resurrection's history, I don't even know if the tapes exist anymore, uh, but we preach through the, the back half of 1 Samuel 16, the life of David. So we are going to conclude uh, this series today with, uh, with this reading and sermon from 1 Samuel 15. Uh, and so if you would follow along, it's in, in your bulletin there, and you'll scroll down, or if you have the paper version, it's all printed there for you. Nathan is going to come and read it for us. Nathan, if you would. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me 
and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went to, down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I have feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully, and he said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel.
right, we're going to spend some time uh, reflecting on this text together. My wife just finished, my wife Jen just finished taking an Old Testament survey class from St. Paul's University here in Ottawa. And during the class, the professor made a, a remark that made her send me a text message. As part of one of the lectures, the professor was explaining that sometimes passages in the Old Testament are difficult to understand, and they're difficult to reconcile with who we know God to be in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. For instance, the professor said, take 1 Samuel 15. Most churches, uh, he said, don't preach on passages like this because they know how confusing and difficult, hard to explain. Uh, churches that follow the lectionary, you know, Anglican churches and so on, uh, the lectionary never gets to these sorts of passages based on their, you know, their rotation. For one reason or another, most churches skip over these passages. So, so Jen texted me, she knew we were doing a series on 1 Samuel, oh, are we preaching on 1 Samuel 15? And I said, well, yes, of course. And that's not to take a shot at other churches. They, they are responsible for their own actions before God. But to say that I believe as a pastor, we can't skip passages like this. Is this text confusing, perplexing, disturbing? Yeah, probably. On some level it is. Do I have all the answers? Am I gonna, are you going to leave today with this explanation that you're going to feel perfectly comfortable with? It's pretty unlikely. Because before us, we have what looks like, what looks like, a command to execute genocide, followed by a condemnation for a merciful act, followed by a time when God says he both feels regret and doesn't feel regret, and followed by a judge of Israel hacking a pagan king to pieces. That's, that's today's story. When I was making the new kids' bulletin this week and I was looking for coloring pages, it may surprise you, there are no 1 Samuel 15 coloring pages. It doesn't exist on the internet. No one, maybe if you, any artists out there, you want to create one, let me know. Because it's, it's not one of those passages that you go to thinking, oh, we're going to create a lovely little piece of art around 1 Samuel 15. But here we are, and we're going to look at this hard passage. We're going to dive in together. I have four parts. Get ready, an extra part today, a bonus part. I'm usually three. But we're going to talk about the command first, then there's a disobedience second, this whole part about obedience versus sacrifice, that'll be third, and then part four, it'll be kind of a summary. God is king. The first thing that stood out to me when I was reading the passage earlier this week is Samuel is back. If you've been with us, you may recall uh, Samuel had abandoned Saul for a time after Saul didn't wait for him but offered sacrifices to God himself. But it appears some time has passed since then, also because Saul used to only have a few hundred soldiers, and now in this chapter he has hundreds of thousands of soldiers. But the, the end of the last chapter, if you were here with us, it was this summary of what was probably a few years' worth of work and kingship. Saul is listed as fighting all these different nations, you know, these guys and these guys and these guys, and also including the Amalekites, which are the focus of this chapter. The Amalekites are a people, a nation, a tribe that lived south of Israel, you know, between Israel and Egypt. In fact, it's possible that this chapter is simply an expanded description of the fight with the Amalekites listed in verse 48 of the previous chapter, which you can look up if you want. But Samuel has shown up, and he's going to give Saul some specific instructions. At the end of verse 2, Samuel specifically tells Saul, listen, like open your ears, like you'd say to like almost like a toddler, listen, I'm about to speak some words of the Lord to you. And what does God want to say to Saul in verse 2, that God has been taking notes on what the nation of Amalek did to Israel when they came out of Egypt. 
Now, what did they do? Well, when Israel recently had left Egypt, the Amalekites attacked them, but it wasn't sort of a normal attack, a little, you know, head-to-head match between the armies. Deuteronomy 25, 17 refers to the Amalekites sort of fighting dirty. What they, they didn't attack the, the, the Israelites head-on. They kind of snuck around the side, and in like the long baggage train or whatever, it says they attacked those who were weary and tired and lagging behind as most of the nation kind of went on ahead. You know, they were traveling from one place to another. Kind of a a dirty battle. And then later on, the Amalekites join with other groups to fight Israel again. Actually, three times in the book of Judges, the Amalekites are listed as either the entirety or or part of a group that's oppressing or attacking Israel. These Amalekites, they have a special vendetta, special hatred against Israel, mostly because they're descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother, Jacob, the great patriarch of Israel, sort of his brother that he had a fight with. It's this line of people. They are forever at war now with the great, great, great grandchildren of Jacob. Jacob. Additionally, one other thing, much later in the book of Esther, if you know Esther's story at all, there's this bad guy named Haman who's trying to pass this law that will functionally, you know, wipe out the Jews while they're living in exile in Babylon. And Haman is named very early in that book as an Agagite, which means he's a descendant of this guy, Agag, king of Amalek, listed in this chapter. This deep animosity, it doesn't even end here, it persists far into the future. Also speaking of Agag, according to Samuel's accusation in verse 33, it seems like these Amalekites are still doing evil. Samuel says, you've committed crimes of your own. In short, these Amalekites are not some innocent sort of, you know, desert-dwelling tribe just doing their own thing, and Israel comes out of the blue to attack them. This is a group of people who have worked for the active destruction of Israel, committed to their ruin, ancient enemies of the people of God. That provides some important context. It doesn't explain everything, but it gives some idea of kind of what's going on. What does God want Saul and the Israelites to do to the Amalekites? God commands Saul and the Israelites to strike them and devote to destruction everything they have. And then they're listed. Men, women, child, children, infants, ox, sheep, camel, donkey. Now that's probably the part that strikes some of you, many of you as harsh or as horrid or as genocidal. Maybe another term comes to mind that you don't really want to say in church. That's understandable. But let me give you, say a few things about it. This listing of different categories of people and animals, this is sort of traditional ancient Middle Eastern slang for a serious battle. We have other, other literature from this time period that, of nations saying, we're going to go and kill them, we're going to kill their men, we're going to kill their women, we're going to kill their children, we're going to kill their animals. And normally this is exaggerative language. It's sort of stock warfare language that doesn't necessarily represent what actually happened. It's, it's actually extremely hard to wipe out an entire people group. Now one commentator, this is a little bit trite, but one commentator compared it to the language of sports in our time, where we still say things like, oh, the Raptors, they destroyed the Knicks in the game last night, but it wasn't 120 to zero, it was, they won by 10. But it, but it felt like the Raptors sort of were in, were in control of the whole game. We use exaggerative language to emphasize something important. So I think it's at least possible, possible, that God is not commanding a wholesale slaughter of men, women, and children, but simply telling Israel, fight an all-out war against Amalek. Send send everyone. Send send all the troops you have. Send all the people. Destroy all their fighting men, all their military bases, all their places of strength, all their resources. Do damage. We actually know later, too, from the stories of King David, who comes along, um, that Amalek continued to survive as a nation. David goes and fights the Amalekites. So this attack does not wipe them out as a people. Some survived. However, even if we add up 
the sin, the malice, the meanness of the Amalekites, plus the possibility that God is simply calling for a destruction of Amalek's military capacity, even if you add those two things up, we still have a command for Israel to go on, the, on an offensive mission of destruction. God still sets, it's called a, a curse of destruction on Amalek. So we still have to ask the question, we can't dodge it. What are we supposed to do with this? In what ways should a modern Christian understand it? Is this really who God is? I think a lot of us, when you read this passage, are like, I'm just going to push it over here, put a little blanket over it, you know, not think about it. Well, let me answer it in a slightly roundabout way. In Luke 13, Jesus is asked about a tragedy that happened. A tower in this town called Siloam had fallen, you know, like accidental, accidental tower falling, and eight, but 18 people had died. And these people, just, just crowd, they're, they're unnamed. People come up to Jesus and like, how do we understand these kinds of tragedies? What do we do about, with these 18 people who died? And in the case of this accident, Jesus says, well, first of all, the 18 people who died in the tower, they weren't more sinful than anyone else. He's like, the people in Jerusalem are just as sinful as the people who died in the tower. They're not being punished for their sin. But Jesus goes on. He says, the, and this is Luke 13, verse 5, he says, the lesson of the tower for the crowd is unless you repent, you, you will likewise perish. The lesson of an accidental tragedy is repent or perish. <laughs> now, what does that mean? What does Jesus mean? I think he means that death, tragedy, punishment, even accidental, are a kind of lesson to everyone watching. They are a reminder of something that's in the future for every human being unless we repent and turn from our sins. So what should we do with this command to destroy Amalek? Well, this is one of actually a number of Old Testament instances where the judgment of God is dispensed to people sort of in real time, in human time, prior to their natural death. And the Bible's clear. At the end of your life, every human will face the judgment of God. Everyone. Everyone, everyone must. Those who resist God, those who ignore God, the Bible says they will be cast into hell apart from God. They will be judged. For most of humanity, nearly all of humanity, we face that judgment on sin after we die. It comes after. But now and then, the judgment of God breaks into live history, and we get this taste of how God feels and deals with sin. And I think the best way to understand the destruction of Amalek is foreshadowing the curse of destruction that comes to all humanity unless they turn to Christ. The, the horridness that we recoil from in 1 Samuel 15, I think it's the same feeling we ought to have about the judgment of God. Don't resist that feeling. I don't think you need to resist it. You can understand it. That feeling, it's telling you something important. When, when you read 1 Samuel 15, you should be feeling, I don't, I don't want this. I don't like this. I don't want this to happen. And I think this is what God wants to stir up in our souls with regard to the final judgment. That we don't, we don't want to be there when that happens. We don't have to like that. That's the whole point. And further... This is how we understand what's happening on the cross. The, the final judgment, the curse of destruction, was headed towards all humanity as surely as the destruction on the, uh, on the Amalekites until Jesus stepped in. And on the cross, Jesus takes in that moment, in that present moment, the curse that was to be ours in the future. And now stories like this, 
are, are solemn, disturbing, if I can use that word, reminders to repent and turn for our sins. That we inhabit lives with immense stakes. And we don't know why. I don't know why the Amalekites got present judgment instead of future judgment. We, we aren't told. But I think the suddenness of it should push us to come to Christ, to flee the wrath of God now, because we don't know how long it will be. But let's move to part two, the disobedience. So that was the command, now the disobedience. Saul begins well, gets the army together. It's now numbering in the hundreds of thousands, as I said. He goes off to fight Amalek. He warns the Kenites to get out of the way lest they be destroyed. These are actually, um, it's a tribe of Moses' wife. Moses' wife was a Kenite. She was not sort of a native uh, Jew. Um, and the Kenites had helped Israel after they left Egypt. Actually, later on, again, King David pops up. He actually spares the Kenites on one occasion. Uh, the Kenites take the warning seriously. They just leave. Um, and then the description of the battle, it's very interesting. It's minimal. It's like basically... And they won. Uh, you know, verse 7, they, they defeat them from Havilah as far as Shur, east of Egypt. These places are a bit debated. Just think northwest Arabian Peninsula, south of modern Israel, somewhere between Israel and Egypt. The short description of the battle, it actually tips us off to something. The battle isn't the point. The, act, the warfare, did they do this? Did they do that? Do they have three columns? You know, none of that stuff matters. What matters is verse 8. Saul disobeys. He keeps Agag king of the Amalekites alive. Now, why does he do that? We're not told, so we can speculate. <laughs> but it was a common practice in the ancient Mideast uh, for, if, to keep conquered kings. And, you, and if, you, if you beat a king in battle, you'd bring him into your household, and he would be kind of a living monument to the victory. So when other people visited you, and there'd be five or six kings all sitting around your table, if you were a king, and be like, look, I, like, I beat all these guys and all their armies. This is the strongest possibility. If you actually look at verse 12, Saul sets up a physical monument, it appears, to the victory, and it seems like he's keeping Agag as a living monument. Like, look at me. Beat this guy. So Saul keeps him alive, but that's in direct contradiction to what God had commanded. In addition, in verse 9, Saul and the people are both named here. They keep the best of the sheep, oxen, fattened calves, and lambs. Essentially, they slaughtered all the stuff that wasn't very valuable and kept all the best things. Again, this is a direct contradiction to what God had commanded them. God ordered total destruction. God, God says, and I think the text is very intentional, God said, do not spare anything. And in verse 9, if you look very carefully, Saul and the people spared Agag, spared the animals. Before Samuel even goes to visit Saul, God speaks to him. Verse 11, God says, I regret I have made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me. He has not performed my commands. God regretted that he had made Saul king. This phrase pops up again in verse 35 in sort of a summary of this passage. The Lord regretted that he had made Saul king. What does it mean for God to regret something? We use the word regret to mean I want to undo a previous action I've taken. You know, we did something wrong and we regret it. We wish it hadn't happened. Wish we could take it back. You know, for instance, maybe at work you speak to a colleague in anger. It hurts their feelings. It, it demeaned them. And now we regret speaking so meanly. We wish we could undo that action. Wish we could go back to that moment and do something different. I don't think that's the best understanding of the Hebrew word behind regret. The Hebrew word has a strong emotional element to it that regret does not convey. In fact, most other translations, they don't use the word regret here. They use the word grieve. And I think that's a better fit in my very humble opinion. 
what it means when it says that God regretted making Saul king, I think, is that it means God's heart was filled with pain, that God was grieving over what Saul had done. He's sad about what Saul has become. God doesn't want to take back his actions. We'll talk about that in a minute because God does not sin. But in sort of real human time, God is saddened by what took place on the battlefields of Havilah and Shur. As a personal, relational God, God feels grief. He feels sadness when his people turn back from following him. In a similar way, later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, he warns the Ephesians, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. It's possible for us through disobedience and refusal to to walk with God, we can cause God pain and grief. I think this is important. I think sometimes when we picture God dealing with sin, we picture him as this grumpy, angry judge sitting atop a throne or, you know, in a, in, a, in a judge seat, cold and emotionless, and he's passing judgment, and he's slamming his gavel and throwing people out of his courtroom, good riddance to you, you're an idiot, good riddance to you. I, I don't think that's the correct picture. I think you should ought to picture a father whose teenage son or teenage daughter has gone astray through a series of bad decisions and accidents. Maybe they've fallen in with the wrong crowd. They now struggle with addiction and maybe various crimes that support their addictive behavior. How does a good father feel about that child? Of course, he's frustrated at the devastation of sin, frustrated at poor choices that were made along the way. But I think the primary emotion is, is, a, is a deep sadness this profound grief, a weightiness for this child who is is suffering and in pain and causing pain to others. When Saul looks, or when God looks at Saul sparing Agag, sparing the animals, and allowing the people to do the same, God grieves over him. It's gut-wrenching for God. And Samuel, in a similar way, has an intense emotional reaction. At the end of verse 11, Samuel's angry, And he cries to the Lord all night. God and his judge are moved to to intense grief by the sin of the people. But there's kind of another part to this. If you look down at verse 29, when when Samuel is explaining to Saul, oh, just like you tore my robe, God is tearing the kingdom away from you and giving it to a better king. Samuel includes this comment, verse 29. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. Now, glory of Israel, that's one of the names for God, in case it was unclear to you who Samuel is talking about. But basically, in verse 11 and verse 35, it says, God regretted making Saul king. And then in verse 29, it says, God never regrets things. He's not a human like us who we have regrets. This appears to be a contradiction. Oh, God regrets and doesn't regret at the same time? I think our, Hebrew, our lack of Hebrew knowledge obscures the meaning. See, depending on how it's used, this Hebrew word nacham or something like that can either mean regret or relent or change one's mind or be sorry or feel sad or have pity or grieve, and the, there's more. Uh, it, it's this remarkably difficult word to translate because it can mean so many different things. And you, and you want to get mad and grumpy at all the Hebrews for having a language like this, but English is at least as worse. You know, think of the word right, R-I-G-H-T, right. It can be used as an, as an adjective. You know, it's right and good to use your fork and not your fingers when you eat. Or we can use it as a noun. I have my rights. Don't take my rights away from me. It, it can mean to indicate a direction to go. You know, go down the street, you know, turn right at the corner. It can mean morally correct, you know, right versus wrong. Like, and on and on. How we understand what a person is saying to us when they use the word right depends on the context they say it in. 
So as we get back to God repenting or not repenting, I think the best way to understand the multiple uses here is to say what we've already said, God was grieved over Saul's behavior. He felt sad, gut-wrenched over it, verse 11 and 35, but he's also not like a human who changes his mind. Verse 29 means that God is saying, my, my will is set, I'm not going to change, I'm not going to look back and wish I had not appointed or anointed Saul as king, that is still part of my plan. Now look, even if you accept my argument, we still, just like the genocide, we still have a God who does not easily fit into our categories. There is still some incomprehensibility, some mystery there. His ways are not easily sort of penetrable by our thinking. His nature has some depth that we cannot easily navigate. And we have a God who can both repent and not repent. Uh, he, he can grieve and still not change his mind. But let's talk about part three, obedience versus sacrifice. Samuel goes to confront Saul. Saul claims, do you see in verse 13? Oh, I did God's will. Did you see that? I fulfilled the command I was given. And in one of the great lines of the book, just sort of dripping with irony, Samuel says, is that like the, is that sheep I hear? Do I, do I hear, do I, do, are the cows mooing outside this tent or whatever? Saul tries to blame the people. And then, well, we actually kept them for sacrificing. Very spiritual excuse. Samuel doesn't buy it. They sort of have this round of arguing. Samuel again accuses him of not, of not obeying the command of God. Saul says again, a second denial, verse 20. No, actually, I have obeyed. I went on the mission God sent me on. Again, he blames the people. Oh, it's those people. Verse 21, they took of the spoil. They kept some animals apart so they could be sacrificed. Samuel does not accept the excuses. And in verse 22 and 23, Samuel gives a profound explanation of the differences between sacrifices and obedience. Let me just kind of restate verse 22. God delights in obedience more than sacrifice. God loves obedience more than he loves uh, the sacrifice of a ram. And in verse 23, disobedience is essentially equivalent to seeking false gods through magic, divination. It's essentially equivalent to all kinds of other god worship idolatry. In short, the stakes of obedience are way higher than we ever thought. Even if we believe Saul in his explanation about the animals, it's kind of flimsy, I don't really believe him, he was still wrong. Even if he kept them for the right reasons, he was still wrong, because what God wants more than sacrifices is obedience. That wasn't Saul's choice to make. God's greatest delight is when his people obey him. Now let's pause on that for a second. Have you ever thought about why that is? Ever paused to think, well, why does God love obedience more than sacrifice? I mean, lots of religions, you look through a lot of religions, sacrifice is the highest good. You know, bringing some sort of offering, you know, money or whatever is the highest good. Why is the Christian God different? Well, first of all, God doesn't need anything. He's not dependent on us for, you know, food or money or whatever. He's entirely independent. But I think you should think of it this way. When you offer a sacrifice, particularly if you offer an animal sacrifice, if you were an Old Testament Israelite, what you offer in that sacrifice is the flesh and life of another. That's valuable. It's, not, it's, not, it's no small thing to kill, kill a, a sheep or whatever as a sacrifice. You offer the flesh and life of another, but in obedience, you offer your own flesh and your own life. So you can outsource sacrifice you, go be the sacrifice. You cannot outsource obedience. 
Can't get someone else to come and obey for you. There's no amount of money. There's no amount of volunteer hours or sort of other options that will buy obedience. Obedience can be offered by you and you alone. Sacrifices are a test, but they're a test of the pocketbook, test of the credit card. Obedience is a test of your life. And that's why God says through Samuel, if you are not interested in obedience, then functionally you may as well worship some other God. It counts like divination, it counts like iniquity, it counts like an idolatry, because obedience is about your life. It's about who you are. And if you're not about God, then you're automatically about something else. And what God saw in Saul that day at Gilgal is that Saul was willing to give sacrifices to God. He was willing to give lip service to God, but what he was not willing to give was himself. Saul was on Saul's side when it really came down to it. Now in verse 24, Saul suggests, well, he was afraid of the people. Again, it's the people's fault. That's possible. I mean, we do weird things to get the approval of others. I'm not sure I even believe that. Does does Saul really get it? Does Saul know himself well enough? Is this true? I, I don't know that we can know. What is clear is that from later chapters, this repentance of Saul, where Saul says, I'm sorry, I've sinned, That repentance, if it was genuine, it was short-lived. Saul didn't mean it for very long. In the long run, we quickly realized Saul was interested in Saul. Saul was interested in saving his own flesh, saving his own life at the cost of everything else. And so the question for us is simple, but it's not easy. You may give money to the church. Thank you. You you, you may serve volunteer shifts here at the church. Thank you. Um, but the, the, the real question is, like, are you willing to get up on the altar of obedience? You're, you're fine to offer the flesh and life of another. Will you offer your own flesh? Will you offer your own life? If, if that's what it costs you, will you still obey? Now, finally, God is king. Story ends kind of on a dark note. I mean, the whole chapter's been dark, but this is dark too. Samuel told Saul God rejected him as king. And then Samuel turns to leave, and you can picture Saul sort of reaching out and grabbing his robe, and a piece tears off, and Samuel, quick-witted, he's like, that torn robe, that's a symbol for how God is ripping the kingdom away from you. And yet, for reasons we don't quite understand, Samuel agrees to go back with Saul. They arrive back at their war camp, or, you know, wherever they're celebrating their victory. Verse 32, and Samuel tells the soldiers to bring Agag to him. Agag comes happy. It's like, Ah, I had to live in Saul's court, you know, whatever, big deal. He's happy. Samuel accuses him of war crimes. And then says he hacks Agag to pieces. That's rough. That's not the language the scripture normally uses for a death sentence. It's one of the most descriptive and brutal uh, descriptions that we have. And again, I think we ought to understand it as a symbol for the kind of punishment received for heinous sins. It's not something to be giggled at or laughed about, but this somber, sober teacher for us that sin has real consequences, and Samuel seems like he's the only one in this passage willing to deal them out. And then Samuel just leaves, and it says they never meet again before his death. But what I want to point your attention to is the chapter closes with Samuel and God grieving over Saul. The story doesn't end with Agag lying on the ground, you know, cold, pitiless judgment. What it ends with is garment-rending, gut-wrenching sadness over what has become of King Saul. 
Samuel actually does what he can to rectify the situation if you, if you go on to read the next chapter, because the next chapter opens with Samuel heading to Bethlehem. It's on his way to find the new king. In his grief, in his sadness, in his anger, Samuel tries to help the people, but because he's only a man, Samuel's quite limited. He can do some things. He can go find David and anoint him, but he can only do so much. But here's what I want you to know. God, the great high king of Israel, similarly grieved, is not so limited. Because the next chapter kicks off the anointing of David, the best king Israel will ever have. A king to whom God will say, I'll never take my love from you. You'll always have a man on the throne. From David's line will come a king to establish a forever kingdom. So the question I want to linger in your mind today is, what does God do with his grief? When God feels this kind of gut-wrenching grief, what does he do with it? What he does with it is he continues his long-term plan of sending a savior. And that plan will not be movable, it will not be changeable. For thousands of years, God will arrange the time and the place to send himself. It started long before this, of course, far back in the garden, but God's regret over Saul leads him to action as sending Jesus Christ to live and die, that none of his people, none of those who believe in him, will have the punishment that fell upon the Amalekites. We've said over and over in this series, God is king, Yahweh is king. What does it mean for him to be king? It means he grieves our sins, he sends leaders and priests and helpers to help us, but ultimately it means he will send himself to save us. That's what it means for God to be king. This chapter may perplex you, it may bother you, I doubt I've answered all your questions. But what I want to hold in your mind, if you can, is this picture of a grieving God. That God will take his grief and he will use it to energize his saving works. Because God grieves, because he grieves our sin, Christ will live and he will die and he will be resurrected. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, sometimes like today we come to your word humbly because we, we, we sort of don't know exactly what to do with it. So we ask for your Holy Spirit to illuminate our, our hearts and minds that we might understand what is written there for us. Give us patience and, and hope uh, to under, to, to, when, when things don't make sense to us or we have a hard time putting the puzzle pieces together. Help us to cling to what we know to be true, that you are a God who loves. You are a God who sends himself to save us. May we cling to Christ when we don't know what else to do. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.